0: I think the other sort of trap that people tend to fall into, and traps a bit too strong maybe, is that you end up reporting impact rather than actually using it to manage your business and make decisions. And then you end up with a a sort of nice glossy impact report, but actually the decisions you might have made over investments are no different even if it's low or high impact based on your own framework.
1: Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as our regular listeners know, the purpose of the podcast is to encourage you to be more philanthropic and to act more sustainably and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Please subscribe to the show. It makes a huge difference. And also, please share very widely with your network. It also makes a huge difference and it helps get the word out. Today, it's a great pleasure to welcome on board Nick Temple. Who is the CEO of the social investment business or SIB? And we're going to talk a little bit about grant making and loans to small nonprofit and social enterprises today. And so, without further ado, Nick, a heartfelt welcome to the Do One Better podcast.
0: Thanks, Alberto, and thanks for inviting me on.
1: Quite the opposite. Thank you. Why don't we start a little bit with um, finding out a little bit more about the social investment business or SIB? It'd be great to know a little bit more.
0: We're an organisation that's about twenty years old. Our kind of roots are in the community sector, so we were started originally by uh, some representative organisations for different community-based charity social enterprises, to mm-hmm. to, re- to really pioneer loans to to them. And the first sort of eight ten years of our life was really about having government-backed social investment to do a fair amount of that loaning. Uh, what at that point was very quite a pioneering way of approaching things from about 2002 to about 2010, we maybe did about 320 million worth of uh, investments Uh into a whole, whole range of organizations. And then more recently, we, we added grant making and business support to our sort of portfolio of activities using the same, if you like, expertise and infrastructure and people. And then latterly, in the last couple of years, we've been really working out what our, what our USP or what our place in the landscape is now, because obviously in 2002, there were maybe half a dozen of us yes. doing, doing loans. And now there are, as you know, many more. And so really working out what we add and where we add value and where we can help have the greatest impact. So that's been occupying us, particularly in the last two or three years.
1: Interesting. Are you finding that the competitive landscape is indeed becoming a little bit more robust that you have other folks out there who are doing similar things?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think, um, and that's a very good thing. It's a good thing, right. Sure. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the landscape has changed a lot. I think it's becoming more mature. It's becoming a bit more segmented. So if you're a, you know, a small homeless charity in the Northwest, you know, sometimes there are specialist geographical or specialist sectoral funds that are available to you or specialist support. Um, Similarly, if you're a kind of retail based social enterprise that operates nationally. So I think we're, The landscape is definitely fuller. I mean, I think there's always a risk then of, you know, duplication and, uh, you know, some some weakness of some of those intermediary uh, investors. But generally, I think it's a positive thing. We're just just working out now where we fit, where we play, Mm -hmm. how we support others and what our role is in, in this current landscape.
1: If one is a charity, though, it's a good thing. There's more of you to approach if one were seeking funding.
0: I think so. I mean, uh, hopefully there's been a lot of learning in that time as well. Like, you know, we do not approach those things as we did 15, 18 years ago, as as you'd hope. I mean, you know, we have a better sense of the impact we're trying to have. We try and think more proportionately about the customer and what they can really do and cope with. We try and be responsive maybe more than we were back then. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe the products are more varied as well. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say everything's perfect, so I think we still have... There's plenty to improve upon and plenty to learn. Yes, um, but it's definitely in a different place to when it was in those kind of slightly more pioneering days.
1: Mm-hmm. And what sort of um, what sort of support do you provide charities and social enterprises? Is it uh, is it mainly through loans? Do you provide grants? Uh, do you take equity stake? What tell us a little bit about how you engage with your customer base?
0: So mostly it's um, it's loans and grants. So I mean, as you know, uh, you know, having listened to your podcast, Alberto, obviously as a dedicated subscriber, wonderful. which I am, wonderful. Um, you you'll know that most charities and social enterprises, as they're structured, you know, can't do equity. You know, so so the vast majority of our investments have been debt. Um, they've just been loans, um, often very patient, very flexible, very long-term loans, but loans mm-hmm. nonetheless. And then, as I said, we we started to get into both straightforward grants um but also grants for business support so we ran quite a few programs um that were seeking to improve what was called the readiness of organizations either mm-hmm. to win contracts or to improve their impact or to or to take investment so we do all three really so we do we do investment we do grants and we also do kind of um support programs as well with non-financial support so working out the right blend the right mix what's right at at different stages for organisations is is part a big part of what occupies us.
1: Yeah, as I was doing a bit of research on your organisation, yes, I, I did indeed come across some of the um, some of the funds you have, the Investment and Contract Readiness Fund, for instance, that um, helping organisations become a little bit more resilient and, and win contracts and, and gain investment. How do you how do you decide about these specific funds and how to tailor them?
0: I think we've we've learned a lot so i think sometimes it's you know we're running them or for another organization so some of those came from government some of those came from big foundations Mm -hmm. like the lottery um i guess what we're trying to do is bring our expertise and experience to bear so increasingly we don't just chase contracts for those programs i suppose we we genuinely seek to partner Mm -hmm. uh, with the organization so we can be involved right from the design stage and also through to data collection and learning so that we can really bring our expertise to bear. Yes, um, and I think that looks like um, that looks like the areas that people want for support. You know, so if that's around, you know, measuring impact, well, what's worked when we did the impact management project a while back? If that's around, you know, looking at those who have long term loans, well, what have we seen from our portfolio? What sorts of interventions tend to be needed? You mm-hmm. know. Um, are organisations good at self-diagnosing that, or do they need help diagnosing that? Um, how do you, how do you also balance? And this has been a critical one for us over the years. How do you balance the, the need for expertise from outside
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, on a particular topic with also skilling up and building the capacity of the organisation themselves? And you know, I think we didn't always get that right in some of those earlier programmes, but I think now now we're getting a better right. balance of. Of that, So the sort of, you know, all the knowledge doesn't fly out the window when the consultant leaves. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But actually, we're thinking much more about how we really strengthen the organization backfill for posts internally and so on. Um, So I think we've learned a huge amount over the course of those and I I hope improved our practice as Mm -hmm. we go. Mm -hmm.
1: And the loans and the grants that you make, is there a typical size, a typical duration? Um, what, What do those look like?
0: So the loans are really interesting. I mean, so we have really this kind of um, two sets. So there's one One was these large government-backed social investment funds. So they were uh, future builders and community builders were mm-hmm. two of those. Um, why everything was called builders at that point, I do not know, Alberto. <laughs> but I, it I'd is what to, it is. It is what it is. And and then everything was called readinesses. So you have builders and then readiness. But anyway, the the, <laughs> the future, future builders, for example, you know, they're They were fairly substantial loans, you know, a quarter of a million pounds is often a kind of average loan. Okay. Often often to more established organizations, so at least 10 years. Um very patient. So the average loan length on those two funds is is around ten years. So, you know, we're very patient. And when I say flexible, I suppose that's often the word that just gets bandied around. So we try to look at our data to see whether we really were flexible, <laughs> you know, so are we different from the bank effectively? And, um, what we found is in terms of the variations, both financial and non-financial to those loans, then we've, it's really substantial. The amount of work we do to try and support organizations through the journeys they go on in a 10 year period, right? So stuff happens, people leave, markets change, commissioners move, um, and, and so we have to also adjust and change to support the organizations we're invested in throughout that. So often those, those early government funds were, were very patient, very flexible, very impact led um, with a decent amount of grants alongside. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the latter ones, we've, we've more recently had a couple of funds that are a bit smaller. So we have one called the Forward Enterprise Fund, which uh, aims to provide loans to organizations supporting those who are coming out of offending or recovering from addiction. Right, um, And those are smaller and slightly smaller timeframes. So those tend to be more kind of 50,000 over five years rather than, you know, 500,000 over 10 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a pretty wide range and that's hopefully why um, we've got a lot of learning and data and knowledge to share.
1: Mm-hmm. And the loans, are they at market rates or are they, are they preferential rates? Or how would you describe them?
0: Uh, well, what's a market rate Alberto? I mean, that's a whole question in itself. So um I, You know, the Future Builders loan, the average loan was about 5.5% going Mm -hmm. out. So it was a bit subsidized, I guess. Actually, we've started to work out the sort of realized interest rate of those, and it's probably more like 1% or 2%. Mm -hmm. Um, And to be honest, we think that's pretty much what's needed in the market. Often these organizations are working in places of market failure, right? And um, where the economy can't sustain higher returns. Um, And I think we probably have a job to be more open and transparent about the fact that, yes, there are some markets where you can, to use the sort of cliche, do well and do good. Um, but actually, there are some markets that need a bit of subsidy and need a bit of blend. It's not mm-hmm. to say that everything has to be grant funded. And, you know, I think we've proven we can recycle money successfully and reinvest it back in those communities, mm-hmm. three, four, five, six, seven times. Um, but they will often not deliver a kind of market rate return that's double digit. and. and and arguably nor should they so so that gives you a picture of where we are in terms of the the spectrum of Mm -hmm. um of social and impact investment i guess if that makes sense
1: indeed it does and very interesting and so let's talk about a little bit of impact investing or esg integrated investment and so forth Mm. how is the uh the impact investment uh world engaging with you or how are you engaging in that world and what sort of impact are you are you driving forward as you're engaging with um, with the landscape here?
0: It's it's about that segmentation I referred to earlier, really. So I think we who who isn't happy that bigger pools of capital are starting to think about impact, right? So like mm-hmm. that, that that has to be a good thing, and um, and similarly, you know, so you may have seen something that, that called the spectrum of capital, where mm-hmm. you know organizations and investments happen along a a sort of spectrum of what they're thinking about, what their intention are, what their level of commitment is. So we're we're at the very active end, kind of the deep impact end, as some others would call it, um, where we're happy to, you know, we're focused really on those thorny problems in the toughest communities with, you know, economies that have really struggled for some time and supporting organizations that work there. Um, I think impact investment tends to be a bit up the spectrum, where it's it's getting into these kind of okay we're being really intentional about how we think about impact, and we're we're really thinking about how we measure that and how we balance that with our financial return, but we're probably still sl- slightly more up the commercial end of the spectrum mm-hmm. and then, and then you have ESG, which is you know really originally at least tended to come more from the kind of compliance end, so sort of managing out the negatives, if you like, so you know starting to divest from Originally, arms and military and nuclear, but now obviously environmental, fossil fuels and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and and generally, I guess the shorthand for those is social investment. is tended to be millions, impact investment billions, and kind of ESG and mainstream trillions. And right. so, I, so I suppose the interesting thing for us is, can we persuade some of the billions down towards us? And then, and from their perspective, can they persuade some of the trillions down, down mm-hmm. towards them? And I think we're for us the key thing is. Um, to ensure we don't lose focus on the communities and people and organizations that really need it. And some of those are the difficult, it's the difficult stuff, it's the wicked problems we face, it's society's toughest stuff. And we mustn't lose sight of that. But at the same time, if we can influence the mainstream sector to do better and hold itself to higher standards, then, and they can hopefully learn from some of the work we've been doing, then all the better. Really. Mm. And um, that's partly why we've been heavily involved in the Impact Investing Institute.
1: And okay. Yeah.
0: So I sit on the board of that, and my chair Hazel Blair sits on the advisory council, and that's partly because we want to both share what we've learned and um, keep them keep them honest in terms of the the impact part of that name, um, but also we want to influence that wider market and and keep the connections to to the mainstream as well. And I, I do think, I do see it as a two way street in that sense.
1: Mm. Do you? Um... You collaborate a lot with other foundations, other other financial institutions. Is there much conversation going on?
0: There's a huge amount going on. I mean, it's um, it's very rapid, and and I think the challenge is really, you know, it's also about the the standards and the kind of authenticity of some of it. And and you know, there is there is lots of good stuff, mm-hmm. and um, but equally there is some fairly cynical rebranding of stuff. And, yes, um, yes, yes. You yes. know, th- we we've seen. ESG funds be rebranded as impact funds. And, um, you know, actually, nothing has changed except the name. And I think, but equally, there's a bunch of people who are really interested in it, and maybe just don't have yet the knowledge or expertise on some of the problems we've been grappling with for two decades and more. And so I think it's just that balance of bringing people with you, but also having some standards about what we mean, because there's an obvious risk, as there was with Greenwashing. There's an obvious risk of kind of impact washing and and, and not not real change happening. Um, to think about how we maximise our impact, we need to be we need to be really clear about okay, well, what's the impact we're trying to have? How are we going to articulate that, measure that? But equally, I think crucially, how are we going to factor that into our decision making? Yeah. Know, so I think the other the other sort of trap that people tend to fall into, and trap's a bit too strong maybe, is that you end up reporting. Um, impact rather than actually using it to manage your business and make decisions and and then you end up with a a sort of nice glossy impact report but actually the the decisions you might have made over investments are no different even if it's low or high impact based on your own framework Mm -hmm. so we really need to embed that in our processes and in the culture of our people so that when they're when they come across a potential deal it's not just okay does the business model stack up do the finances work you know how does this market look in future but also okay well what do we think about their impact and you know is that is it is there is is there as much risk around the impact not happening as there is about the business model not
1: happening mm-hmm. and how
0: do we how do we really assess that and, and factor that into the decisions
1: yeah are you finding that there's part po- you know direction of travel is positive in uh, trying to find or identify or develop a consensus on a definition for impact, for instance,
0: I don't know about. I mean, I think it is positive. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of you know there's a whole sea of uh, acronyms and initials that are all in their own way attempting to have consensus, which is sort of slightly ironic. But mm-hmm. um, I think I think there is. I think the impact management uh, project project um is helping with some very with the kind of broad framework and principles of that i think you know there's lots of work from many of those sets of initials gri sasb and so on sure that are all they're all working on that i'm laughing because i know it like a someone on our board is out facilitating the sort of alphabet soup of organizations at the moment trying to right. uh, uh, work on a sort of set of principles so i do think there's progress but i think in the meantime we can all do better on it ourselves as organisations, and we've tried in the last couple of years to be quite open and honest about what we're trying to do. We've we sort of published an impact framework externally. We've come up with some core categories that we're going to use. We've opened those up, and and now we're in the process of really trying to embed that through the organisation, which is which is difficult to do, and and mm-hmm. it takes a while, but um, I think is is critical if we're going to you know, walk the walk of what we're we're saying to people.
1: Absolutely. And at least the whole exercise is anchoring the conversation in a, in a positive mindset, as it were, right? Because people are trying to do good. Whether definitions still need a little bit further clarity or otherwise, at least people are talking about it, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, and I think that's has to be encouraging. I mean, I think it's, you know, you can't just say, no, 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 you're not doing it well enough. Um, or you know, that's fascinating, but we did have that conversation 15 years ago, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's inevitable when pe- new people enter a field, right? And we need to kind of keep their enthusiasm and engagement whilst sharing knowledge and insight and experience. And, and hopefully you marry those two and you you carry on growing a movement. And I think, yeah, if we keep focused on the impact um, and keep focusing on getting better at that, then I think that's probably right at the heart of what will help grow the movement, but grow it in the best way.
1: Mm hmm. Who can approach you? Are there any criteria that you have in terms of finding out or uh, letting individuals know whether they're eligible to apply for funding from you?
0: Yeah, so, um, I mean, it depends a bit fund by fund. Okay. Um, so, you know, the, for example, the fund I mentioned earlier, basically if you're not an organization working with or started by ex-offenders or people recovering from addiction, then unfortunately that <laughs> that fund is not for you right. or for your, for your organization. But we do have general funds. We have... Um, some, some business support programs that are working in four different sectors at the moment that we do with the Access Foundation, um, where we've got a, a big fund that we're running in partnership with some others called the Youth Endowment Fund, which is a grant, mm-hmm. a grant fund, uh, which is about serious violence in young people. Um, and so we they, they often have specific criteria. And then we also have some general funds as well. So people should always to be honest, feel free to drop us a line and and get in touch via the website. and Because often, even if we can't help, we'll, we'll hopefully know the people who will be able to and be able to kind of signpost people around.
1: I understand. So they're applying more to the fund than to SIB itself?
0: Often, yeah. I mean, I'd love to get to a stage where actually they feel they can just come to us and then we can almost identify within our sort of portfolio of stuff what mm-hmm. might work best. Um, and I think that's the way we're starting to think about things. And then you can kind of marry up your support with the right finance and so right. on. But um, for now, yeah, often it's often it's fund by fund or program by program a little bit.
1: And on the other side of the equation, who are the, the larger uh, foundations or organizations who come up to you and say, look, let's set up a fund to do early childhood development or let's set up a fund to do to tackle um, employability skills. H- how does that work?
0: You know to be to be honest a lot of it's still driven by government okay you know I think um the the youth endowment fund that I mentioned you know that was a straightforward intervention from the home office I mean we now run that fund and it's outside of government but right. yeah you know, that was a, a significant intervention and um there are a, a set of foundations who are very forward-thinking so um there's a group of them who are part of the Association of Charitable Foundations who kind of get together and are the sort of leaders in social investment and foundations. And we we are often co-investing with or working with a whole bunch of them, whether it's, you know, Esme Fairburn or Lang Kelly Chase or, or whoever it would be, or Guy's and St Thomas's charity and so on. So um, and then obviously the two, two sort of Big wholesalers, big society capital and and the access foundation have mm-hmm. been been very influential in terms of what money comes through and I think um they've certainly had a big influence on the market and how you know how social investment is being done in in the u k
1: no that's great yes, we had Carol Mack actually from the um, Association oh, okay, of, great. she's been a she's a previous guest of ours so it's 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 a it's a small world. How did you get into this? How um, yeah? Tell us a little bit about Nick and your background and your trajectory thus far, and how did you end up running this uh, SIB?
0: That's a good question.
1: Um, <laughs> Hopefully, you have an answer.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> you, 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 I think you make it sound more rational and um, okay. through when you look back. So I'll try and do that. But I guess I um, I started out working in a really small charity run by a fairly eccentric founder. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And we that was a charity that that made its money actually to doing book deals okay. publishing deals so i think i came out of university having done a literature degree um and but also having done some charitable work and mm-hmm. then this for me this was something that brought both together so i was like okay this looks cool um and through that really i got interested in that combination of earning earning money towards a charitable purpose so this idea of social enterprise really and um, the founder a guy called Nicholas Albury was, was really inspirational. So he would always say that a social entrepreneur was someone who had suffered or experienced a problem and then solved it in such a way that it not only solved it for themselves, but also for a load of other people. Right. And I found that quite compelling. And then, so I got very interested in that. And then I ended up going to the school for social entrepreneurs, which is a kind of startup program for social entrepreneurs and was there for about six years and helped, expand their franchise of schools around the UK and run that. And, um, uh, and then, uh, I moved over after a bit of freelance work to, to social enterprise UK, who are the the national body for social enterprise in the UK as the name would suggest. Mm-hmm. And, um, and worked as, I mean, latterly as deputy CEO there. Um, and so, I mean, effectively what I'm saying to you, Alberto is this social enterprise stuff really has to work. Otherwise I'm totally screwed. So like, um, <laughs> You know, I've got I've got yeah. no transferable skills, <laughs> pure social enterprise. And then I guess the, the reason for moving to a social investment business was having worked at those two previous places, SSE and SEUK. Like, actually, you know, you started to really get under the skin of what were the challenges for, for those organizations. And sure, finance and support were big parts of it. Sure. Obviously, obviously the, the, the market and who buys their services was a huge part, too. But finance and support and really strengthening their organizations was was key and so the opportunity to come to an organization that had a track record in that but could do more and do do better potentially was really attractive and um and so that's what brought me here a couple of years ago
1: Mm. well for what it's worth i have a feeling you're in the right space i i don't see social entrepreneurship vanishing anytime soon and quite the opposite i think it's gaining momentum
0: i hope so we used to joke um that uh, it it was always the it was always the next big thing. So or uh, right. we were depending on who had recently heard about it. It was always the zeitgeist. Uh, but after after sort of twenty years, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know how zeitgeisty I feel at yeah. the moment. But um, I think you're right. This stuff is this stuff is heading our way really. And you notice little bits where uh, family or friends who, when you started in this career, sort of looked at you blankly like you were insane now start to, you know, say they bought this product or, you know, their their investor has said this or they're thinking about putting their pension in this and so on. And uh, so you see those little signs that things are changing and filtering through.
1: Absolutely. And how do you see things playing out for the next 10 years, um, which dovetails very nicely with the Sustainable Development Goals for 2030?
0: I mean, I'm pretty hopeful. I tend to be sort of, um, you know, pragmatically optimistic I guess so Mm -hmm. I'm pretty realistic but I think you know actually incrementally I think this stuff is is going very well I think you know there's the the climate crisis and climate emergency brings an opportunity to accelerate some of it as long as we don't lose uh the connection between the environment and people which I think Mm -hmm. sometimes sometimes the ESG tends to be very e and not so much s so um I think that brings opportunities and, and it's starting to starting to have real impact in how people are thinking about that. Um, I think in terms of social investment, more sort of parochially, actually, I'm encouraged. And I think our what we've been able to demonstrate, I think, and our data now shows is that we we do strengthen organisations if we invest in them and support them in the right way. And mm-hmm. if we can do that in some of the the communities that need it most um you know wherever those might be in the u k or for our colleagues and peers overseas then then actually it does have a role to play. It's not a panacea like you know for some organizations grants and donations will always be necessary for others it's a it's a mainstream business or some will rely on volunteers and so on. but I think there's definitely a role for the the work we do, and I think for us it's just how do we do that most effectively? how do we keep learning? Um, from what we've done previously, and how do, we, how do we share that as well, actually? So a big, you know, we invest and we partner in the ways I've talked about, but also increasingly we seek to, we seek to influence and share our data and learning so that we can help shape the market for the next 10 years and not just uh, react to it.
1: That's great. Where, where should someone go if they want to find out a little bit more about your impact and some of the work or thought leadership that you're uh, involved with? Uh, what's the best website to, um, to visit?
0: Yeah, so our website's um, sibgroup.org.uk. So sibgroup.org.uk, and and then you can follow it from there. There's blog and impact and news and resources and stuff, and um, and I guess also the normal social media stuff. So on Twitter, we're at the Social Invest, mm-hmm. uh, or you can if you want something slightly more random, uh, you can follow me at, at Nick Temple One, um, uh, and also on LinkedIn as well. I guess we share a bit on there, so people can catch up with us there and. And we, we welcome feedback, we welcome thoughts, and welcome connections with people if they're interested in what we're doing.
1: Well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. What's the, um, if there were one key takeaway that you'd like to share with our audience today, one key salient point that you'd like them to remember after they conclude listening to this episode, what would that be?
0: I think it would be, actually, I'm going to, can I make a new one, Alberto? Is that right? Sure. Like drop an entirely new one in at the end. I think I would I would say that increasingly we're thinking uh, less about scaling individual organizations mm-hmm. uh, as part of what we do and more about scaling impact uh, across the board. Okay. And so I think, you know, increasingly as times are hard and the economies are hard and we we batten down the hatches a bit. We actually look people should be thinking about, you know, sustainable prosperity and strengthening organizations to make them resilient for whatever happens. And actually yeah. imposing scale on individual ventures and organizations, I think, may be something we we look back on and slightly question why we were doing that. So I think that, that, for me, is a, just a thought to conjure with and something we're thinking about a lot as we, we we structure our work going ahead.
1: I like that very much. No, that's very interesting. That's great. Perfect. Well, look, Nick, I have to tell you, it's been very enlightening speaking with you today and learning a little bit about your, your organization and the work you're doing to support some of the uh, nonprofits and social enterprises. Really great stuff. To our audience, I say thank you so much for listening. Please do subscribe if you haven't already, and also please share if you haven't shared already. It makes a huge difference for us. Nick, really a heartfelt thank you. It's been wonderful speaking with you today, and I wish you continued success.
0: Thanks, Alberto. Likewise for you.